evening, I'm going to continue the series of talks that I've given on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, and we're getting near the end. Supposedly there's three more talks, we'll see, but certainly we'll get to the end of the text. And it's a particular discourse, it's, you know, 2,500 years old, supposedly given by the Buddha, that lays out a series of exercises to do, or ways of perceiving the world, that um, help develop uh, mindfulness, help develop a heightened kind of awareness that is instrumental for setting us free. And, um, and freedom from the ways in which we get entangled in our thoughts, our feelings, and the world around us. And um, today the topic is what's called the six sense bases. And there's a particular set of instructions for how to pay attention to these things called the six sense bases. And uh, this particular exercise section of the text is probably the one that's least talked about and least discussed or least read. Um, and um, it's kind of, if you read it, it, initially it seems really boring. And however, it's probably the one that kind of best represents how the mindfulness practice is kind of most essential and uh, is talked about indirectly. People kind of say the same thing as here, but it says it's very simple and direct. And, um, and I think that rather than calling it the, the section on the six sense bases, it should be called the, sec the section on uh, the entanglements, or the six entanglements. The word uh, that's key, you'll see in this text, in this section, is uh, literally means not, uh, K-N-O-T. And um, so to get all knotted up. And it talks about how we get knotted up in the world. So entangled is a good word. The translation, translators usually translated in a very, uh, in a, one of these kind of Buddhist, you know, there's a particular kind of vocabulary called Buddhist English. And, um, and so there's all these, they're English words, but they're kind of peculiar, <laughs> peculiar way. And so one, the word uh, that they usually use for the word knots is fetter. And when's the last time you used the word fetter? Some of you use that word today? <laughs> Never? <laughs> and um, so, but you might have used the word entangled. You know, I got really entangled in something today. So, uh, in order to introduce this section, I'd like to do an analogy, that, a little variation of one I, I do frequently. So, I, I have this striker in my hand, and I can grab, you know, the striker can be really important to me so important that I really want to grip it. I don't want to lose it. I don't want anybody to take it from me. And I could focus on a number of things, but I could focus either on the striker and really hold it tight, or I can focus on how important the striker is to me, the thoughts, the ideas, the beliefs connected to it. And those ideas can really, I can get caught up, entangled in those. And because I'm so caught in those ideas, I grip this striker really hard. In between the striker and all the thoughts and things that I have is the very important thing, and that is the grip, the holding. And, um, and what this uh, particular section says is notice that holding, that gripping in between 
what you see and your seeing. So there's objects in the world and they sometimes exist even if we're not even around, but then we see them. And it can be very innocent. You just see something and uh, that's nice. But uh, in between the object and the seeing, they say, goes come together, then there can be a knot. And uh, so now that I've highlighted this striker and how wonderful and special it is, some of you now are probably kind of, you know, really starting to think about, you'd like to have this for yourself, and, <laughs> and you don't even listen to what I'm saying anymore because you're thinking just about striker, striker, and, or, well, you know, or you're, you know, you're entangled with being irritated by me by always using the striker as an example. And so you're entangled with your thoughts about it. And so what the text says is that <clears throat> there is objects in the world that you can see, there's a seeing of them, and then there's the fetter between them. There is the, uh, what you can hear, the hearing, and the fetter. Or I, I want to use, the, I want to drop the word fetter, not, or the entanglement. And then there's what you taste, there's a the, you know, flavor and the tasting of it, and then there can be an entanglement. There is a smell and the smelling of it, and then there can be an entanglement. And there's touch, you know, what something, you know, in your body, is, and there's a awareness of the touch, and there can be the entanglement. So those are the five senses. In Buddhism, they posit a sixth sense. And it's very interesting the idea there's a sixth sense, because with, like with seeing, the eyes are a sense. Uh, I can see this book that's here on the, and, um, and uh, the book and my eye are two separate things. If I turn my away, eyes away from the book, I still can see, the book still exists, but I no longer see it. But I turn towards it and I can see it, and I can see that it's separate from me. And I can have a relationship with the book, or I can just see there's a book, or I can get entangled in it. So the same kind of per, uh, perceptual relationship can exist with what goes on in your mind or your inner life. So you can, uh, it's possible, especially with training, to really see or perceive that you're thinking. When you're thinking, there's a thought and there's the perception of thinking. And that perception is distinct from the thought, just like the book is distinct from the seeing. I can have a feeling, an emotion, and I so clearly know that I'm having an emotion, and that knowing is distinct from the emotion. And I can have beliefs, I can have, you know, there's the whole, all the different things that go on in our world. So it's kind of like the mind's eye that can see what goes on in the mind. There's, so there's a, a sixth sense. And, um, and what's, what's very important about this distinction is that the same relationship can, relationship can exist with the things that exist in our mind, our thoughts and emotions and all that, as I can have uh, just looking you know, relaxedly at the book. There's a book and I'm here and the book's not bothering me. <laughs> uh, and I'm not bothering the book. It's just, just I see it and that's what it is. There can be a thought and you can see it as just a thought distinct from the perceiver or, or perceiving and just a thought and you know, you don't have to do anything with it. You don't have to get involved in it. You don't have to get entangled in it. Don't have to be bothered by it. Don't have to judge it. Don't have to assign meaning to it. We don't have to do anything. 
the fact that we have a thought, just a thought bubbles up. And then, um, and then at some point it goes away. But we can see it that clearly. And that's very different than how people, some people live, where we're kind of identified with our thoughts or our feelings. We're not really so distinct from it. It's almost as if we are our thoughts. I think, therefore I am. But you know, so like, you know, we're so, we're so closely connected or to, um, it might not be clearly thoughts, it might not be clearly emotions or inner feelings or intuitions. It might be some kind of um, a composite of all the kind of inner workings that are kind of all jumbled together in soup. And we don't quite see what it is, we don't quite know what it is, but we kind of are it. And what that means is when you, when you think something, some people think something, it must be true, because I thought, I thought it. And whatever I think must, you know, somehow, sometimes there's not much questioning of it, sometimes there is. Or uh, there's some kind of non-questioning of some aspect of our inner life that has to be there if we're going to suffer we're going to have distress or distress. Some way that we've gotten entangled with something in there. And um, so we're closely meshed with it. The, uh, the ability to see the, the inner world, to make the distinction, to tease apart the soup, so we start seeing the particular component parts of this whole inner life, and to see it, oh, it's just a thought. It's just an emotion. But the just isn't diminishing or dismissing it. It's just, oh, it's simple. It's just a simple thought. It's a simple emotion. And there's no, there doesn't have to be the automatic instinct to get involved or to be, pick it up or get pushed around by it or react to it, just there. So an image that's used, as sometimes in Buddhism, is um, when the mind is quiet enough, peaceful enough, and spacious enough that a thought can arise and pass through the mind like a cloud, small cloud, passing over an endlessly blue sky. Isn't that kind of nice? So you say, well, there it goes, it is, right? Um, uh, but, you know, we sit here and, um, and um, You know, maybe, you know, I evoke something rather unfortunate. I don't know if it's the case, but I'll try. <laughs> uh, you know, I can tr ask you to remember your first girlfriend or boyfriend. You know, the first partner or something that, you know, stood you up or something. And now you're not going to listen to me at all because, you know, it's not just you remember it, but it's not just, you know, you know an innocent thought that floats through. It's like, that's interesting, you know. God, how could he have reminded me? I can, now I'm not going to be stuck in that all day, you know. And, you know, and, uh, you know, and you, you, it's an example of being entangled and caught, you know, with it, as opposed to just, just a thought. But it's a very powerful thing to understand and to re even more so to realize that there doesn't have to be an entanglement with a thought. We, in a sense, we don't have to get involved in it more than just to see it going through, going by, just as there. An emotion, we don't, we, it's possible to just see it arise and pass, just without being caught in it. The first, one of the first times I clearly saw this, um, uh, in a way that was really uh, significant and inspiring for me to see, 
was uh, uh, I was in, on a meditation retreat, <clears throat> so my mind was kind of quiet and spacious, and I was doing walking meditation. And the way we do walking meditation is we walk back and forth about 20 or 30 paces, and people usually stake out their walking spot, you know? So, you know, so where are you going to sit? You know, you're going you to walk for 20, you know, you have about 45 minutes to walk back and forth. And um, so I had found my place, and I'd used it before in the retreat, and sometimes people are like, you already claimed it for the retreat, Don't, no one else should be there, right? <laughs> but I, I wasn't that attached to it, but I was walking back and forth. It was, a, I think it was a long hallway, and I was walking down part of it back and forth. And uh, this, I saw, I noticed this other person was, came in walking slowly, you know, walking meditation, like, and I thought, okay, he's going to walk right by or something. And, and then he got into my lane. <laughs> but I was in my, I, had, I, was there, I was there first, right? And um, so this is curious. And I thought, well, he certainly he's going to, you know, he's just trying to get someplace else. He's just on his way through. And, um, and uh, I turned around and like gave him a chicken or something, you know, like there we were, you know. <laughs> and, um, and so I got angry. And so I was, you know, some, of, some of me got entangled with it, okay? That certainly did that. But um, the anger uh, just rose, and I didn't get involved in it. I didn't pick it up. I didn't judge it. I didn't judge myself because of being anger. It was just like this smoke or this, this you know, cloud. Just, and it just, I had the, the physical feeling kind of was it arose from someplace in my torso, I guess, went up to my head where it could get, maybe do some damage. <laughs> and it just kept going. And I thought, wow, it's like Teflon mind. It, had, it, had, it didn't stick anywhere at all. It, just, it was just anger. I knew it was anger, and that's all. And that was different than how I would have been in the past about anger, because anger is pretty captivating. It has authority, and it's really important, and it's me, <laughs> and, you know, and I'm right, and it comes with all kinds of ideas about how you're supposed to act and be. You know, so so that's all, those are all called entanglements. We get entangled. I got it. But it was no entanglement, so just shh, there it was. So uh, the instructions for this exercise in the text is to know that when you're in front of some object that you're seeing, to know there's the object. And then to know that there's a seeing of it. And if it's there, to know the entanglement, to know the fetter. To know how we're, in it, we're caught up in it, involved in it, we picked it up, we're somehow ruminating and thinking and wanting and not wanting and, and uh, you know, involved in it. And, you know, you can do that with all kinds of things, right? So, um, there's sight objects. Um, uh, you know, you could see an object or see a person that looks very desirable. And, you know, you could just see a desirable person, attractive person, attractive thing and just, you know, it goes right through. You know, it, you know, people are like a dime a dozen around here. They come and they go and, <laughs> and you know, just, you know, there's the person. And, um, uh, but then there's the entanglement. It's like, oh, you know, let's see if they have a wedding ring on. <laughs> you know, oh, no, you know, and then, you know, and I wonder, you know, person free and what 
So, yes, what you do? <laughs> I know. So, um, and so, you know, it's entangled, right? So instead of that, to just, oh, look at that. So I did a koan practice with an American Zen teacher named Aiken Roshi. He's deceased now, but at his time he was a very famous Zen teacher. And uh, koan practices, you're given these enigmatic, kind of enigmatic um, questions or statements that you have to respond to. And, um, and sometimes you go over back with the response and the, the meetings with him, the interviews sometimes last 30 seconds, you know, because you give your response and he just points to the door. Come back, come back next time. Try again. Like the key one, the, 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 the entry point koan question, in his tradition was um, uh, the question, does a dog have Buddha nature? But you're actually given the answer as part of the, the, the quest, the, part of the, and the answer is mu, um, which in Chinese means no, but that's almost, seems almost, supposed to be almost irrelevant to your answer. So people will try for months and months, and we come back with, how do you answer this question? You know, how to statement, how do you respond to it? And then once you pass that, then you go through a series of other ones. And as I remember, it was many years ago now, but there was one um, that had something to do with seeing an attractive person. And this attractive person's walking down the street and smiles at you. So how do you respond? So I passed that one quickly. <laughs> and um, and uh, he was happy with my answer. I said, you smile and you keep walking. Anyway, that's what... I don't know what you think of that answer, but it got me on to the next question. <laughs> and um, so this idea that, uh, you know, we don't have to get involved, we can just appreciate it and, and, and continue and let things be. So we can see a sight object, see that that's an object. We can know that we're seeing it, and then we can know the quality of that seeing. How are we involved? Are we contracted? Are we tight? Are we stressed? Are we resisting with our eyes? Are we, you know, eyes popping out of our, our, our eye sockets, you know? Or what is going on there with our, with our whole eyes and the whole eye kind of mental kind of phenomena? And, um, and then there's the sounds and smells and tastes and, and the physical sense world that we can touch kind of. And um, it's possible to kind of see these three component parts. And the most important one is uh, the entanglement. Uh, the, 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 you know, that we have this extra activation that goes on. Extra kind of, you know, swirling or agitation or involvement. And how you know that you're entangled is if your thoughts in relationship to whatever the object is, you can't easily put down. You can't just let go of it and go on to the next thing. So an attractive person walks by, and uh, maybe you smile in a nice, friendly way, and then you continue to think about it, and think about it, and think about it. So there, oh, there's a story I can tell you, a famous Zen story. Two monks, uh, two Buddhist monks in ancient China were uh, traveling to, across the countryside to a, a new monastery, and they came to a river, uh, somewhat shallow river that you had to cross. But there was um, a woman there 
who uh, somehow wasn't able to cross it by herself without maybe getting her dress wet or something. And uh, so she was a little bit distressed. And so um, one of the monks uh, just picked her up and carried her over and put her down and continued walking. And so the two monks made, made it to the uh, next monastery. And just before they got there, uh, the, the monk who didn't do the carrying kind of finally couldn't contain himself anymore and said, how could you have done that? Because one of the rules that we have as Buddhist monks, we're not allowed to touch women. So how could you have done that? And the man who did the carrying said, I put her down by the river. Why are you still carrying her? <laughs> so this, the, the second monk was entangled, maybe out of a sense of self-righteousness or his attachment to the rules and regulations or, you know, I don't know what. But, uh, you know, he, so the idea that you can't put something down easily. And that's something that um, meditation can reveal pretty dramatically. Because uh, if you sit down to meditate, and do you have thoughts and concerns that keep persisting through the meditation? You, 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 maybe you can let go of them for a moment, but they come right back. Or maybe you can't let go of them. That's a, as soon as you can't p drop something, put it down easily, that means that you're somehow or other uh, entangled. You're caught in it. And when you're caught, you're not free. You haven't found independence. When I had the anger arise, I was independent from the anger. It arose and it passed. If I see the book, I can see the book. I know I'm seeing it. I see there's no entanglement. I'm independent from the book. The fetters keep us chained or locked in. So that's why the advantage, that's, the word fetter kind of means like a chain that we're tied to. The Buddha used the analogy of two oxen that are connected with a yoke. And um, uh, it is not the either oxen, neither oxen is, in, is entangling or, or yoking the other ox, but it's the yoke between them that keeps them kind of uh, bound up. And so it's not the book, it's not the seeing of the book, but it's the yoke that I put between them, the entanglement. That's where we lose our freedom. And so the exercise is to see those things, understand how these work, this entanglement, and to learn to drop the entanglement. And that doesn't mean that we have a judgment about the world that we live in, what we see here, do all that. Um, the book is the book. And I don't have, I, the fact that I'm entangled in the book doesn't mean that the book is bad. It just means that I'm hurting myself with being caught up this way. If I, if I throw away the book in order to get rid of my entanglement, that's like throwing out the baby with the bathwater. It's a perfectly good book. And I just can't deal with my entanglement. So I just get rid of the object. And not, not a, uh, quite a few spiritual people or Buddhist practitioners sometimes take that approach. Just get this thing away. This thing is bad. Get it away from me. And one, one consequence for some people occasionally is they want to be hermits because the world is bad and, and they think they have a very negative evaluation of the world. Not recognizing that the world, in a sense, is neutral, but it's our entanglement that causes the trouble. And so, ox one doesn't blame ox two 
right? That would be kind of silly. It's just the, it's the yoke that's holding between them that keeps them, you know, locked to each other. So we don't blame the world. We try to understand what we're doing in our relationship to it. And that's where we find, can find our freedom. And that's easily enough said if we talk about books and things in the world. But uh, it's much more difficult when we look at the mind, right? Our, our beliefs, our opinions, our ideas, our memories, our conditioning, our habits of mind, our, our uh, emotions. These can come with tremendous force, tremendous sense of authority, sense of rightness, that this is the way things are. We negotiate the world and find ourselves safe in the world and get what we want in the world, often through the vehicle of our ideas and thoughts and perceptions that exist in the mind, our emotions and feelings. And so we have a long habit of really relying on those and kind of getting them right and fixing them and working through that filter. But often, this is kind of the primary kind of locus is of our suffering. The way that we get entangled with this inner landscape of thoughts and ideas. And so it is possible to relax, to calm down enough so that we can start seeing clearly what is actually happening. We can see the arising of a thought and we can see how we get involved in it or don't get involved in it. We can see the arising of an emotion, how we get involved or we don't get involved. We can see the arising of a perception, this very simple concept of what is and we can see how we get involved or how we don't get involved. And as we learn to see that this in the involvement, the entanglement, doesn't, it's not required. It's possible just to let things be very simple. A thought, a thought. And then, or a feeling, a feeling. Then it's possible to discover there's freedom in that simplicity. And I like to say there's also a lot of respect because there's, there's a kind of a deep respect for the things as they are, independent of how we start manipulating and working it and reacting to it, just letting it be. And so one of the uh, texts that um, in our kind of Buddhist tradition, it's kind of almost like the liturgy of our, te- of our tradition, is a famous text that co- uh, called uh, Buddhist Teachings to Bahia. And it was a man who asked the Buddha to give uh, the teachings in brief. And so the Buddha said in brief, in the scene, in what you see, let there be only the scene. In the herd, let there be only the herd. In the, in the uh, sensed, you know, all the other senses maybe, let there be only the sensed. And in the cognized, what you can know in your mind, let it just be the cognized. So nothing extra, nothing, no added layers, no entanglement. Just let it be very simple. In the herd, the scene, the scene, the herd, the herd, in the sense, the sense, and the cognized, the cognized. If you can do that, then um, there'll be nothing in it for you to be caught up in. And if there's nothing in it for you in that, then you won't locate yourself in it or separate from it. You won't, you won't find yourself, there won't be a there and there won't be a here. In the seeing, just a seeing, the heard, just the heard, in the sense, just a sense, the cognized, just the cognized. And uh, 
uh, when you rest in that, with no, no other relationship to it, then uh, there won't be a you in it. And because one of the ways we get entangled, that we add extra two things, is we posit a self. We identify with it. And that it makes things more complicated. So, you know, there's the book. I see the book. And then I can say, it's my book. Now, that's relatively innocent, except that this is not my book. <laughs> it's the library's book. And it's a little bit of a problem if I start saying it's my book. And um, so, um, so it's possible to see it without me in relationship to it. And part of the movement to freedom is to discover how to have the simplicity of not placing ourselves, finding ourselves in the middle of all exper- our experience all the time. And there's no here, no there. And there's no, you won't find yourself in it. And there you'll find freedom. So instead of finding a self in it, you'll find freedom. And one of the great koans is, what would you rather have? Yourself or freedom? Freedom from self. Well, free, actually, the beautiful thing about this is that um, if you choose self, you get nothing. If you choose freedom, then you're left with whatever is great about you. So you don't really lose anything. But you wouldn't you know, think about, you know, there's not this self-referential movement that often happens. So those are the six, called the exercise in the six senses. I prefer to call it the exercise in the six entanglements. And they're supposed to be, meant to be comprehensive. Because when, uh, in terms of the world that we live in, like the external world, the only way you can know it directly is through the five senses. So, you know, and then for the rest of the world, which is not part of the immediate world, it's all through the vehicle of our mind, our memories, our thoughts, our, our ideas, of what goes on. So, um, so the idea of the six senses is supposed to cover all the possible ways that you can be involved in the world. And it's very simple, elemental, kind of simple sense level. And if you can relax and settle back, and begin kind of being there at this primary place where it's the beginning, beginning point of our complicated world, before it gets complicated. Seeing, hearing, touching, smelling, hearing, um, and the mind. Then it's possible to see how we begin to complicate it, how we get involved, how we get entangled. And it's, the pl- it's a place where one of the ways to learn how to be free to just let each, each of the senses operate um, in a kind of a radical simplicity. So we have about 10 minutes. Uh, do you have any questions, comments, protests? <laughs> yeah, and Aloy in the back. It's coming. 
Oh, the gym, so it's coming to her another way. Okay. Um, I guess you might call this a little bit of a protest. Um, I'm gonna go back to the book. Um, I look at the book. I wanna read the book. And the reason why I want to read the book is because I need to escape or um, I need it to go to sleep at night. And so I guess I'm struggling with the definition of entanglement. I read the book, I put it down, I put it away, or I take it back to the library. So it's not an ongoing thing. And then sometimes I read it because I want to avoid work. So I guess uh, are the first. Two, so am I? Am I in, entangled by simply reading, wanting to read the book? You're already entangled before you even start the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I'm struggling with. Do I put a judgment on that? Uh, the, uh, the word judgment is a you know. A, 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 we have to be a little careful how we use. We want to be able to see clearly what's going on and evaluate whether it's useful for us or not, whether it's helpful or not. And if it's helpful, you know, you need to sleep. And uh, so uh, to evaluate, yes, it's useful to read this, to read this book. I think I need some kind of distraction from my, all the things I'm entangled with so I can kind of put those down so I can fall asleep. So I'll read a book. That could be a, that's a, a wise that could be a very wise decision, and um, is it a judgment? You know, it's kind of a judgment. It's kind of evaluating and deciding what is useful to do. Um, <clears throat> however, it's also supposed to be possible to be entangled in that desire to read the book to fall asleep. And one way to be entangled is um, to really be worried and afraid about what's going to happen tomorrow and how I'm going to not be able to do my job and. And what are people going to think about me and, and my future? And, I, you know, we get, we're caught up in all these thoughts about the, f the future. And the book becomes so important and symbolically so important. And so then, uh, for some reason, the book gets misplaced. And we, we wander around the house and we get frantic. The book, I have to have the book. And we start tearing apart, you know, the couches and the, you know, upholstery. And you have to have the book. And, you know, and so we're entangled. But it's like, oh, it's a good thing to, I should find a book to read, and I can't find the book that I thought I did, so I think I'll find something else to read, whatever I have in my house. Te telephone book, if you still have one. <laughs> so, so um, but, it, but the example you gave, I say, you know, respectfully, you know, caringly, um, it's an example of already being entangled, and already being entangled, because you wanted to escape, is, um, is, uh, yeah, then we have to be wise about what we do. And I think your choice to read to help you fall asleep might be a very good choice given that how you're entangled in the world and work and all that, and maybe a wise thing to do. But with this practice, the hope is that at some point you would um, actually turn your attention towards um, what's going on, for example, with work. That you get, you're entangled with work, so it gets stressed out and you can't put it down when you get home. And, um, and that's what this exercise is. This exercise is turn towards so you can see uh, work, the you know, knowing of work, 
and the entanglement I have with it. And I think it's a very responsible, it's kind of, way of, kind of very adult-like, a very responsible approach to life, where we're actually interested in turning towards, really, more and more deeply, what am I actually doing here? Can I see how I get caught up in experience? And what is the nature, and it's not easy, but we begin teasing it, we're slowly over time, we can start teasing it apart. And, um, and uh, start seeing what is the underlying values or underlying beliefs or underlying uh, uh, reasons for why I'm so preoccupied with what I'm preoccupied, why I'm so driven by this, or why I'm so afraid that I keep you know, doing what I do. And so what you, des- what you described, I think, with the book um, sounded like it was, um, um, you know, it was a, 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 a rem- removed from the primary source of stress for you. And so with this practice, the idea is you go try to come back to the primary source and really see where the beginning of all this lies. Thank you, that was very helpful. And I am tearing my house apart trying to find a lost library book. (laughs) Maybe that's out of care for the public uh, library. (laughs) Maybe it can, does it, yeah. Yeah, in the example um, you put about, Uh, you you walk uh, on the street and you see an attractive person and you smile and you keep walking. You know, if everybody did that, how would people find uh, a partner? <laughs> a partner. A partner? I, yeah, and I wonder, I mean, <clears throat> since Buddha said that desire is the source of all suffering, can we really be free and have a partner? Or... <laughs> Uh, yeah, so the, the Buddha didn't say that desire is a source of suffering. He said there was a particular kind of desire. Um, because desires are all the time, right? I mean, you can't have human life without desire. Uh, you want to go to the bathroom, you know, and so it's a good, good thing to do. But, you know, please don't do it on our chair. <laughs> um, but the um, desires are normal and good. But it's a particular kind of desire which uh, the, in Buddhism we, we sometimes call craving. It's the kind of desire where they're so driven and compulsive we can't put it down. It, it has us by our, our nose or by our throat. Very strong, compulsive desire. So not all desire. So it's possible to have the desire to uh, um, talk with someone. Like, you know, I'm, I'm not saying I was looking for a partner today, but I, I went to watch my 13-year-old son's um, basketball game and I sat on the on the bleachers and I sat near a woman who was seemed like a nice woman I saw I sat I just I know because she was nice because she was sitting next to her I said hello and I sat down just you know I wasn't you know, attracted to her particularly and um, just a nice person and um, and so we sat there and you know and she asked you know is one of those your son and I said yes and I said is that one of yours your son oh yes and she pointed to the other team <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> and um, and so then we started talking a little bit, very nice, and had a nice conversation, and and there we developed started started to develop a relationship. That innocent, ordinary way. We don't always we're not always walking on the street, right? And never stopping. We're sitting down. We're doing things. We run into people, and we start talking and having conversations, and and it's. You meet someone who there seems to be some chemistry. It seems like a very nice thing to hang out with and nourishing and nice. 
it's fine to go, you know, have more contact and more involvement and get to know the person more and, and uh, get more involved. And it's fine to then ask if they want to become partners and it's fine to, be, you know, that can be a nice thing and very nice. But, <laughs> I think that the track record of a fairly high percentage of intimate relationships is that they do involve some entanglement, some getting knotted up. But if we avoided getting into the relationship because there are entanglements involved, then we might never get involved. And I think that, uh, that then people have to make a choice. And some people make the choice to avoid them entirely because they're afraid of the entanglement. Another approach is you evaluate the cost-benefit analysis a little bit or something. That seems kind of cold, but, you know, and realize, you know, yes, there's, uh, this is a, seems like a nice relationship. There's, it's nourishing, it's meaningful, it's supportive, it's helpful. It, I feel like I'm a better person. I feel this makes my heart sing. This is really good. And I like being with this person. It just feels like it works. And I know I'm, a little, I'm attached. I know I have some entanglements in relationship to it. But let's put it all on the table and let's practice with it. And let's kind of uh, turn towards those entanglements and those complications and try to work through them and find our way through. And if the other person is willing to uh, include the entanglements, include the challenges as part of the relationship and part of what they do and being honest about it, then you got yourself a good partner. And if they don't, then you have to do some more evaluation and consideration of what's the wisest thing to do. So how does that sound? Yeah. Good. Good. Thank you, you. you feel like that addressed your concern? Yeah. So, so you're ready to start now. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so, you know, I, I don't want to keep you all captive here for longer. It's after nine. It, it, it doesn't seem right. Um, I'll stay up here if you want to come and ask me directly, and we can ask that way. Is that okay? Everyone who's eager, boy, that really... So, thank you all, and um, may you uh, study your entanglements and become wise. Thank you.